Welcome to this new Thinking for a New World podcast of the Talbrecht Foundation. Does COVID have a silver lining for Europe? Closed borders, hoarded medical equipment, confused policies, fractious summits. By any measure, the pandemic has not been the EU's finest hour. But could it have been bad enough that Europe's leaders now know they must do better? Is it possible that failure in the face of COVID could produce a more successful European future? Ana Palacio, Spain's former foreign minister and a leading European legal and foreign affairs scholar, and Magnus Schultz, former Swedish ambassador and advisor to the Wallenberg Foundations, talk about Europe's challenges with Alan Stoga. Arguably, the pandemic has not been the EU's finest moment. Closed borders, trade restrictions, nasty summits. Europe's political leaders, but also a lot of European citizens' first instincts seem to have been to look to local or national solutions rather than to European solutions. We'll get to the recovery fund, the budget, the future in a moment. But I'd like to start with the COVID crisis. What is it about the last months that has made it so hard for Europe to be Europe. Anna, what do you think? Well, first of all, you say that COVID hasn't been the finest hour, but it hasn't been the finest hour for anyone, except maybe for New Zealand or South Korea. So uh, that's the first thing that we have to, to bear in mind. My second comment at this stage would be, that, you know, the European Union is messy, it has always been messy, and this is part of the, of the character. And I would say that uh, the worst was when we saw the internal market, the four freedoms disappear from one day to the next, borders were closed, there was that each one, each man for himself, uh, just if I had a mask, I wouldn't share it, the trans, that there were shipments that were stopped in the internal market, and this was hard. And I think that this is something to take into account. And in that sense, it was dangerous. But this was then reframed, rephrased. And again, I mean, the story goes on and the story continues. And uh, there are fine moments, as you mentioned, nasty summits. But in the end, there was an agreement, not just on the, on the multi, the seven years budget of the European Union, but also on this annex of fund, funding that is not just uh, credit, it's also just a concession. It's non-repayable. And I think that this is a major issue. I want to come back to the recovery fund in a moment. But Magnus, first thoughts. Well, I do agree with you and Anna that this was not the finest hour. And while one should remember that uh, healthcare is is a national prerogative, I mean, as we know, even a subnational uh, that is regional responsibility. So, actually, national coordination uh, of these issues is also a challenge. So, of course, consequently. Uh, European coordination of, on these issues is a huge undertaking and, and has not been the mandate. So I think that is worth remembering. And uh, and I agree with Anna. Sadly enough, some very national 
a protectionistic instincts kicked in and the panic surrounding the storage or availability of critical equipment and safety equipment and, and all sense went out of the room with regards to the principles of the single market and supply chains. And that was uh, the worst moment, I would say. And again, we'll get back to what has happened. I think Europe has this strange uh, tradition of, of developing through uh, crises. And this is a crisis that we cannot waste in the sense that there are a, a number of instruments uh, that we should put in place so that next time around, we will do it very differently. Again, leaving aside the details of the budget and the recovery fund for a minute, you implicitly are making the case that having had the bad reaction at the start could be a learning moment for Europe, could produce uh, both at the leadership level as well as at the citizenship level a different reaction going forward. Is that a fair way to look at it? That if a crisis occurred again today or tomorrow, that the reaction this time might be better? Or am I being too optimistic? Well, this crisis of the COVID, as all the crises, has not just signaled the fault lines, but has aggrandized the fault lines. It has just brought differences into the system. And there are good news, and the, and the, the budget and the fund are good news, we will react better because we will know. And I hope that we take advantage of this knowledge. One of the problems of this crisis is that nobody saw it coming, nobody. Uh, but having said that, I don't think that we are close to seeing, uh, for instance, the, the health competencies just going to Brussels. So the, the European Commission having a bigger competencies on there. Uh, Magnus has very uh, ably and diplomatically, which is very normal, use coordination. But coordination is not the essence. The essence of the internal market is shared sovereignty, shared competences. Just uh, having the European Union institutions, and in particular the European Commission and the European Parliament deciding. I'm not sure that we are going to see transfers of sovereignty anytime soon. But yes, we will react in a more intelligent way. Yes, this is for sure, because we will learn. Uh, in Europe, we learn from our mistakes. You mentioned the fault lines. There's obviously fault lines running north-south, mostly over economics, east-west, over social policy, judicial policy, the role of the state. How fundamental are those fissures to the future of the European Union. Magnus? Well, uh, of course, this summer, the north-south divide maybe was brought you know, to the front pages. But I think one should take a step back in looking at it. Of course, we had the financial crisis before and, and the measures taken and the lessons learned in that very dire situation I mean, a life and death situation for the euro as a currency. I mean, unprecedented mechanism and systems 
were put in place in order to steer all member states, I would say, into more uh, fiscally prudent waters. And, and of course, you had varying responses from those uh, countries that, that had the most severe problems, uh, many of them in the south. But I would say all, uh, I mean, Greece, of course, as the most prominent example, but, but including Anna's home country and, and, and Portugal and others, made significant reforms in order to respond to these challenges and uh, showed the responsibility that we would expect here up north because uh, for our own historical reasons, we have put those mechanisms in place in our national systems and and already uh, prior to the, the this financial crisis. So, and, and uh, of course, you also had there uh, which is significant, I think, the uh, the ECB and the famous Draghi, whatever it takes, uh, actually doing a lot of uh, the spending in order to um, underpin those reform efforts uh, while they were happening. So I think that's the backdrop uh, against which we saw this kind of the debate this summer on on the uh, on the recovery fund. Uh, of course, uh, significant is what happened when Germany and Angela Merkel decided that they would accept common borrowing. But again, I think one should remember, this is for specific reasons and the response to corona-related effects. And whether it's, uh, and of course, it's on a gigantic scale, uh, never heard of, but uh, it's still not known whether this will be uh, uh, an exception or a precedent for, for how the uh, EU would handle this. Uh, so, and of course, um, I think uh, eventually uh, the frugal four, as we were called, we were actually five because Finland was pretty much part of the group as well, came to a sensible compromise. And I would not... Uh, even though it took whatever four days and nights before uh, uh, an agreement was reached, I think at the end of the day there was an agreement, there was a common will, and I think that's what should be remembered out of uh, these discussions. But it's historical, the Hamiltonian moment, maybe not, but but still the uh, something worth discussing for four days at at the highest level. So the process as you've both said, produced a good outcome or at least produced an historic outcome. Anna, how do you think about that, whether it's a Hamiltonian moment or not, how do you think about the consequences? What is the implication of both the conversation, those four days and nights, but also the output, the recovery fund and the budget? Well, I hope that there is a better understanding about what the European construction is about. Um, I think that Magnus has very, again, very rightly underlined a term, which is responsibility. I would underline another term, interest. And again, this was about the, the, the internal market. Without this fund, which is, uh, has been introduced as exception. I, I mean, for the moment, nobody thinks that this will be a routine for the European Union. And this is why it is important that the Eurobond solution that would have been a kind of a, a series or something to be uh, more 
evidently repeated is out of the out of the picture here we have a fund linked to a seven year um, budget and with a character of exceptionality so let's again go to this idea of responsibility absolutely yes and this is something that in the south we need to understand that solidarity is not the name of the game today it's not solidarity is about interest but it's about interest with responsibility and in the north i think that the frugals have to understand what does it imply in terms of the efforts that magnus highlighted that the south has made the efforts on uh, just getting better better in terms of you know uh in in macroeconomic terms and the reforms were harsh they were conducted in all i mean the member states of the the spendthrifts of the south they were conducted. we also have to to understand that that this this interest is an interest that is not uh, it's not short term it has to be an interest in the long term and in the long term this interest and this responsibility is what adds up to the solidarity because we are in it together so we need to educate our public opinion in uh, in spain and uh, to tell them no you know you know you, you cannot say oh solidarity solidarity doesn't work like this you have to understand that we have a common interest and that this common interest and this common interest we need to have this uh, responsibility which is also a responsibility of the north to understand the differences which are there but again we are in together unless we part we are bound and this bound is called solidarity so solidarity interests and responsibility as a package and, and let me add to that that, uh, I mean, we from the business side in, uh, in Sweden, at least we were, we reminded the Swedish government that it is, it is in our interest to make sure that the markets in, in uh, Southern Europe uh, uh, and, and all over Europe would continue to function so that we did not see a, a crunch in uh, demand that would then uh, hit our industries because the economies were going going down there. And that is, I, I think we have a similar pedagogic uh, challenge up here in North to explain for our citizens, our taxpayers, that, that this is the, the dependency of European economies, uh, if we look only at the European level of things. So I think it's it, it takes a lot of leadership here and of course, it's both in the direct uh, handling of the COVID crisis and the, in the economic consequences. Sometimes it's too easy for the politicians just to blame the European level or, or blame the system, the European cooperation for, for what's happening instead of um, explain and use the platform uh, for um, for the interest uh, to the interest of the citizens and let me just summarize this idea that um, the European project has suffered and suffers from structural blame game from the from the member states and this 
we have to come to terms as well on this because um, our public opinions many times are misled by this kind of schizophrenia of the government. And uh, this is part of this learning curve that I hope that we have, uh, we have understood. This was a set of decisions that excluded, for the first time in decades, the United Kingdom. Brexit is underway. Perhaps a hard Brexit is in sight. But the question I'd like to ask is this. Putting aside the details, what do you think are the lasting consequences of the UK having left the EU? Of course, the, the critical mass of the European Union in the world has nothing to do with, without the UK. And this is particularly true in international relations and defense. And it was just a few days ago that, uh, that the Minister of Defense of Germany just highlighted that we could not plan our defense without the UK. Well, it's going to be complicated, but the European Union has to have a personality. Having said that, what's the worst about the Brexit? Is that for the first time, we, we see that the project is not irreversible. Now we, we have come to terms with reality. So I think that this idea that this is not irreversible is something that I hope will permeate in, a, in positive grounds by having a European Union that in the future will be Schengen approach, will be different configurations. Because this, this is what is the first consequence of the Brexit, is that this idea of la méthode communautaire and everybody just going at the same path doesn't. It, it's not just any longer part of the reality of the system. And as I say, what I hope is that we will uh, we will channel this situation through a constructing more euros, more Schengen, where some member states participate and others do not. Magnus, a two-track Europe? Yes, I mean, Sweden is, uh, is an example of that already, having had a referendum on the euro and uh, we said no, which is, uh, if you ask the people in Brussels, they still consider us to be pre-ins in a technical, in a, in a judicial way, uh, which, is, which is true. They are just waiting for us to join. Of course, the political reality in Sweden is that maybe one political party having maybe 4% of the electorate would, would openly argue for a, a Euro uh, membership. And uh, I mean, that flexible approach is, is already there. Uh, uh, so it's a multiple speed. Uh, uh, of course, you need to have a, a common platform within the European Union, otherwise uh, it would be too flexible. Uh, and of course, the single market and, and uh, legalities uh, surrounding that must be at the core of that. And, and, and for instance, the, uh, the common uh, trade policy that we have. So otherwise, uh, things would definitely go apart. I mean, it was the saddest moment in my professional life when with the referendum and the results and, and what we have experienced since then. It's really... Uh, uh, not least for a country like Sweden, who has uh, used actually the UK as its uh, to leverage uh, our positions in within the European Union, and now we 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 we, we miss them, and and hence also you saw the frugal four 
having to step um, to the fore uh, to make its uh, case heard. I think had the Brits been in the room, it would have been a different kind of uh, dynamic uh, in in those discussions. So uh, we miss them as as like-minded, if you put it like that. But I, it's a bit too early. I, have, I mean, we are in the midst of waiting for the Brits to give us exactly how they want to handle the the permanent agreement uh, or permanent relationship with with the European Union going forward. And I'm still hopeful that it will not be a limited approach. I, I fear it will be. But both how they handle the coming weeks and months, actually, and what we end up with as, as, a, as a more permanent agreement uh, is still deciding whether this will be a happy relationship or one that is, you know, going to, to be, um, you know, hurting us uh, more than benefiting us. Do you think there'll be a hard Brexit January 1st? Anna? I, I think at least it, it will not be a harmonious Brexit. This, this, is, this is there. This, this is as far as we can say today. I'm an optimist and I, I always think that there is a possibility that it's not a completely hard Brexit, by which I mean an aggressive confrontational Brexit. In between, between harmonious Brexit, which is not going to happen, and a confrontational Brexit where we, we will, I hope it doesn't happen. There are a, I mean, all kinds of grays. And there again, we, ha we have the COVID as backdrop. And we have the elections of the United States as backdrop. And it will depend a lot on how, for instance, these two, these two, uh, I mean, these two events or these this process of COVID and this election in the United States and the aftermath, this will be uh, this will be taken into account in uh, in the aggressiveness of this. But if we are reasonable, and I hope that we don't want suicide as Western, as the as citizens of the West, we don't want to su uh, suicide. I think that there will be. <laughs> I mean, some common grounds. I mentioned the intervention of the, of the defense, the German defense minister. Of course, we, if we have a Schengen in defense, we have to have the, 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 the UK participating in it. And it will be the interest of the UK as well. But of course, if it's a very sour divorce, maybe it will take some time to, uh, to just to go over, it's you know divorces are always terrible. Rarely, rarely just agree, and uh, we are in a kind of of very difficult, unforeseen uh, divorce because I don't think that uh, those that voted uh, for Brexit understood well the consequences that this would bring will bring for the UK. And those in the continent, and there were some that said, okay, well, now we can do, we can be together and we can do more things together and we will have more commonalities, are also wrong. And allow me one detail, because it's not a detail. Magnus has highlighted this UK approach, and I will take it at a very low level, at the level of the legislation. 
the legislation, the UK voice was always a voice that you should take into account because it was common sense, it was practical. It would bring people, uh, I mean, opposite positions to a reasonable kind of wishy-washy, but reasonable and workable solution. And uh, uh, Magnus, you will miss them because they were the ones that would take the front line in uh, just putting on the table positions that you would defend from a more, I would say, from the trenches. But even for for a country like Spain, the voice of the of the UK will be missed, and it will be missed among many other areas because of the Atlanticist vision. We I don't know if we will have time to speak about that, but this Atlanticist vision cannot. I mean, it's much more difficult if you don't have the UK with you. Well, in fact, I wanted to segue, if I may, I wanted to segue to widen the aperture and ask not precisely the Atlantic question, but the much broader position, foreign policy positioning question. Europe going forward, how does Europe position itself vis-a-vis the United States, vis-a-vis China, vis-a-vis Russia? What, is, what, what are the elements of a future European post-Brexit? foreign policy? Well, uh, at the core, again, we have to work on our own competitiveness. So that is actually, that's an internal matter, but we need to look into how we invest in our future in terms of R&D, in sustainability, in digitalization. That's, if we don't do that, we can for we can forget the rest. Uh, so I just want to start with that. But uh, more as an a global actor, of course, building on that single market success, uh, materializing, uh, it is the trade policy. We will, uh, in all earnest, be uh, a soft power uh, for the foreseeable future. And I think, but in the in in the review we have now going on on the on the trade policy in Europe, uh, we we need to make. Uh, we need to be step up the game and be more ambitious, and that means that we also have to be some, at some, in some cases less naive. We see, and and a, a watershed actually is whether we will have uh, four more years of uh, Mr. Trump or if we will, uh, in a way, go back to to uh, uh, Biden, uh, where we could see the U.S. as an as an ally in all our ambitions globally. And uh, I think what the first important message to send to the US, whoever takes over the White House next year, is that we want to cooperate with you. I think there is a huge risk that the US with uh, a Trump two administration will go after the Europeans. And that is severely bad news for both us and them if that happens. That will have a ripple effect on, on maybe uh, also in the hard security concerns because then Europe will start to think that we will we cannot rely on these people in uh, on the Americans in any case, and and uh, we would do a lot of 
unnecessary spending and investments in fields where where uh, I think we could where they could be put to use uh, in a better way. And um, not saying that we should not spend more on defense, uh, also representing one defense industry, uh, mind you. So I think that's, uh, and, and, and equally, of course, the trade policy review is mostly about how to tackle China. Uh, it would be so much easier if we did it together with the US, but it's all about doing the, the double uh, uh, act of insisting on on uh, multilateralism but uh, also seeking a bilateral uh, relationship with china where we will put them to uh, stand up for whatever they sign in such an uh, as it will be then hopefully an investment agreement where we can have uh, both offensive and defensive uh, instruments at hand and apply them, not just referring to some uh, loose uh, multilateral or WTO-related uh, um, sanctions. So I, uh, I, I, th- I think that's where we should uh, spend our time. Well, first of all, I think that, yes, absolutely, the force technological revolution, if we miss this one, we will consolidate a trend that unfortunately is there, is that Europe today is more the chessboard than a chess player. It's the chessboard, and we have seen already in this Trump, first Trump administration, and I hope only Trump administration, uh, this just clearly, but when you see the Huawei discussions, you see that unless we bet on our Nokia or on our Ericsson, on ours, especially in the areas where we are complementary with the United States, this transatlantic link has to be restored. And unfortunately, the perspective of a second Trump administration doesn't bode well uh, for that. Now, let's look inside. Yes, inside we have to get more competitiveness, but we have to get our our ideas. We have to get our ideas together as well. We cannot have 27 positions vis-a-vis China and yet claim that China, European Union. One of the highlights before COVID, one of the highlights of the German presidency was going to be this uh, summit with China where the European Union was going to consolidate its position. But for the moment, what we have is 17 plus one, um, Portugal just welcoming, not having any restrictions or Greece, uh, the Piraeus port, uh, yet other member states like Spain trying to to keep certain limits to uh, Chinese expansion, unless we coordinate. And there, yes, I agree with Magnus, the word is coordinate. Unless we coordinate this approach, we we are in a, I mean, a difficult, in a difficult position. And the Huawei debate is just, uh, just that. Now, um, on defense, hey, I'm an Atlanticist. I think that NATO is, is fundamental. But we Europeans, we have to understand that NATO will not go 
even with a, a non-Trump administration, even with the Biden administration, it will not go as it used to be. This is not Trump, this is a tendency. The United States is a different course, and we need to understand that. And we have, we have not just the Mediterranean, where we see that France and Greece and Italy have a position, and yet with vis-a-vis -vis Turkey, I mean, uh, in the in the bottom end, in the Levant of the Mediterranean vis-a-vis -vis Turkey, and yet uh, Germany takes a very ambivalent position. It's very difficult to speak about Europe in the world or the European Union in the world with such differences. We need to put our act together, and it's not going to be a common uh, foreign policy, but at least a coordinated one. At least we cannot have the biggest member state when the second most relevant member states in area of defense uh, excluded uh, Great Britain because it's Brexit, just takes a position seconded by Italy, seconded by, uh, of course, by Greece. The, I mean, it, it just, it's the, the message the, that we are sending to the world is terrible. One issue here, and where we Europeans, we need to get our act together in another area, is our narrative. Europe, what for? Because in the end, this is, this is what is crucial. Europe, what for? This is perhaps a rhetorical question and hence an unfair one. But where does the leadership come from to, as you say, Anna, get your act together? Where does the leadership come from to make Europe more coherent, to have a more coherent, not just narrative, but reality? Well, uh, I mean, frankly, the problem here is that we are, we have a ambivalent, not reluctant, an ambivalent leader. And this is Germany. When Germany, what leads, and this is the MFF, so the uh, multi-annual uh, uh, budget, and this is the fund for the COVID. When Germany leads, Germany gets things done. And this is the big picture, but it's also true in the internal market in uh, just uh, very, uh, in, in, in legislation, it's also true that, and this is the Germany that just leads within, for, leads the European Union. Then there are moments where Germany goes its way, and this is immigration, the decision on immigration in 2015, the, the Syrian crisis, goes its way, and then what happens is that European Union reluctantly follows and reluctantly means that the project just sputters. And then there are areas where Germany doesn't want to lead, either is absent or doesn't participate, for instance, uh, defense, and where things do not happen. It's as simple as that. This doesn't mean that it's just Berlin. You need Stockholm, you need Paris, you need the other governments, of course, you need them. But if Germany is not present, you know what, in the end, it's, Germany is a bit the cement of things that happen. Well, and the complication, of course, is that Germany is going through its own leadership transition. Magnus, how do you see it? No, I, I actually, I was about to give the more 
obvious uh, response that it's a it's a French German commonality that would be required to to really make the magic happen, and maybe that is also the response to your reservation about going into a transition period it, with Germany. I think uh, uh, the French president will will be there to to fill the void and the vacuum in that moment, and whether he has uh, Germany with him in doing so or not will of course, uh, depend on the effectiveness of, of, of European policies uh, in the meanwhile. But but at the end of the day, Germany uh, must uh, lead from behind. And of course, with their history, they are reluctant at times to lead um, from the front. But I think, uh, again, I'm optimistic. I think the new commission is better equipped in terms of its personalities to to be the uh, an effective instrument for Europe being more outspoken. And um, I think the combination of French ambitions and, and German structure here uh, could actually do the trick. But, but again, uh, countries like Sweden and, and Spain, we would, of course, insist that that would not uh, be taken too far, but that the, uh, how boring, uh, boring as it is, I mean, the... The, um, the working groups uh, in, in Brussels must do their, their boring job as well in order to, to, to massage it, uh, in order to make sure that there is uh, a sufficient transparency in that French-German cooperation. Everybody buys in. So, and you, you have to sell the idea. And this is what is done. And this transactional role of Brussels in general is fundamental. I want to thank you both, Magnus, especially for using the word boring. I've wanted to be bored for a long time this year, and COVID has made this anything but a boring year. And this has not been a boring conversation. So thank you, Anna. Thank you, Magnus. And let's see what happens next. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments and please subscribe to other episodes in the podcast app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support 